listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. great joy and privilege to again this week be in the gospel of Luke and as you know we keep saying it over and over again um, Luke is writing this gospel for a guy named Theophilus and his desire uh, right there in the first few verses of chapter one is that Theophilus be convinced of who Jesus Christ is that Theophilus be convinced of the gospel and the way Luke has laid it out so far for us is in the first two chapters he has, um, in the first two chapters, he's giving us an overview of the life of Jesus Christ, intermingled with the life of John the Baptist, because the two of them are connected. Then he comes to chapters 3 and 4, and he gives us an introduction to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He starts out with John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. You're going to know that Messiah has come when you see the forerunner, John the Baptist. And then chapter 4 is spent looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ. And when we come to the end of chapter 4, in verse 43, Jesus says something that I think we need to latch on to. First of all, because it's going to project what ministry is going to be like from this point forward, but it's also a transition statement. He's moving from this introduction. Jesus is telling us what he's going to be doing, and then the, the text begins to flesh out what Jesus is doing by building the gospel of the kingdom. If you look at verse 43 of chapter 4, it says, but he said to them, now what's going on here is Jesus has gone to Nazareth and they didn't want him in Nazareth. He said no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So he leaves Nazareth. He goes to Capernaum and he starts preaching and people are transformed and demons are cast out. And the people in Capernaum, unlike the people in Nazareth who said, would you get out of here? The people in Capernaum are like, don't leave here. Capernaum, we know, was his headquarters. We see him going to Capernaum over and over again. It's on the Sea of Galilee. It's obviously a very beautiful place. And so they're pleading with Jesus, stay here, don't go anywhere. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Jesus is going out all through the region of Judea, all of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now what we see when we come to chapter 5 is Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but Jesus also inviting people into this gospel kingdom. And it's interesting as we look at Jesus inviting people into this kingdom. As we glance at the text, we see five different groups of people that Jesus is going to encounter. The first group that he encounters would be what I'm calling the doubters. The second group that he encounters would be uh, the diseased. The third group that he encounters, we'll see in the text, are the disabled. The fourth group that he encounters would be the despised. And finally, the fifth group that he encounters is not a group that any of us thinks we're a part of and none of us should want to be a part of, but he encounters the disgusted, the disgusted Pharisees who are looking down their nose at all that Jesus is doing and everybody that Jesus is calling to himself to be a part of his kingdom. 
Now, as I read through the text, I have to be honest with you and tell you that if I were God and I was assembling a team, I'm not sure that I would pick this crew. We're going to see that as we look at the text. They are unlikely. Messiah, would Messiah choose people like this? Would Messiah go to places like this? They are unlikely. They are unqualified. They are undesirable. Quite frankly, they are unattractive. They're unbecoming. They're unworthy. They're undignified. As we look through the text, I want you to ask yourself some questions. Would you follow any of these men? Would you follow any of these men? Would you let them lead you? Do you think maybe you deserve better? I suppose that we would be more likely to follow the disgusted. We would be more likely to follow the Pharisees. They have the look. They have the dress. They have the degrees. They have the aura. They have the credentials. They have the backing of the denomination. And honestly, they tend to make us feel better about ourselves. In the religious world, people think a lot of people who think a lot of themselves. Did you hear that? In the religious world, people think a lot of people who think a lot of themselves. There are a lot of arrogant men who lead churches. People think a lot of religious leaders who think a lot of themselves. The Pharisees were those kinds of people. They thought a lot of themselves. Would you follow any of these men? Secondly, would you fit into God's kingdom? Because if you walked up to the door of the kingdom and you saw some fishermen and you saw a leper and you saw a paralytic, and worst of all, you saw a tax collector, would you say, I want to join those guys? Because that was the kingdom. This is the kingdom that Jesus is assembling. And if we're honest, these people don't pass the test. At this point, they would not pass the moral criteria. They would not pass the leadership criteria. They would not pass the skill criteria. They would not pass the social criteria. They would not pass the spiritual criteria. They would not pass the religious criteria. And at the end of the day, all they had was the call of God and simple faith. Would you want to be in a kingdom with people like this? Would you want to be in a kingdom with, with doubters and people who were despised and people who were disabled and people who were diseased? I, I want to tell you that after a few decades of living that, that I would because I recognize that you can't build a kingdom with Pharisees. You can't build a church with Pharisees. You just can't. I would prefer to be a part of this kingdom of misfits Folks who have it all together don't need a Savior. They'll save themselves through their own self-effort, through their own goodness. But you, you take a dysfunctional, disorganized, displaced group of misfits and, and based on Scripture, that's a recipe for God manifesting His power through their weakness and their brokenness. So as we go through this text, I want you to ask yourself, where are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? When Jesus comes through and says, follow me, what will you do? Let's read Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put down 
to see. Ask him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish with their nets, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Let me, let me just try to unpack what's happening in these 11 verses. Jesus is teaching. This is what Jesus did. I'm not sure what he's teaching, but he's probably te teaching the good news of the kingdom. He's probably telling them that, that they are in sin and a redeemer has come and that they can be redeemed and that they can be set free from their sin. And the crowd has gathered in. They're pressing in. They're moving closer and closer. They're, they're, they want to hear the word of God. Jesus speaks in such profound ways. He is speaking, the text says, the word of God. And they're on the edge of a lake. It's the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, and as he stands there, on the, on the sea, at the edge of the sea, there are these two boats. Um, Simon and, and his partners have left their boats there. And we, we know this is a, a fishing is a big deal here. Uh, around the Sea of Galilee, there are nine or ten little towns with about 15,000 people in each town. There are somewhere between 18 and 25 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee, and so it was all about the fish. This was like going to a steel town. It's all about the steel, although I'm not sure we make steel in America anymore. I, I'm not sure. You go out west, and it's farming, and there are cornfields everywhere. I'm not sure we would understand that either. Um, somebody asked the question, why do we need farmers when we have grocery stores? But anyway, um, that's, that's, that's very interesting. But it's, it's a lake, and there are boats, and they're fishing, and this is the industry, and this is their income. And, and so it's a big deal. Jesus gets in a boat, pushes a little bit away from shore. His voice now is heard more clearly as the sound of his words reverberate off the water as water has a tendency to do. It serves as an amplifier. And the text tells us that when Jesus finished teaching, he probably is now going to give them some object lesson that was related to his teaching. And so he wanted the crowd to understand it, but he probably wanted Peter, James, and John to understand it even more. It was an object lesson probably for them. I'm not sure what they were doing while Jesus was teaching. But I can just imagine they've heard him teach several times, and maybe he said some of the same things, and, and maybe, they were, maybe they were scrolling through Facebook, you know? Maybe they were just really tired and had been fishing all night. We know that. And, and maybe Jesus saw you know, the whites of their eyes as they were just trying to do everything that they could to stay awake. But their eyes kept rolling back in their head. And their, their chins kept almost hitting uh, somebody in front of them. And they were jerking their head up. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I imagine you know, maybe they were just like, oh, we've heard this before. You know, just amen. 
you know? Or I, I, just, I just imagine that maybe they were just like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, mm. you know, got to take care of, yeah, that, that fish was good. I just imagine they were distracted, and Jesus is looking at them wondering, what in the world's going on with these guys? What are these guys thinking? And so all of a sudden, uh, Jesus comes with this irrational request, and it is an irrational request. Think about that. It is an irrational request. Why is it irrational? It's irrational because a carpenter from Nazareth is telling a fisherman from Capernaum how to fish. It's irrational. Fishing was done at night. This is the wrong time of the day to fish. This is the wrong place to fish. And, it, and Peter has a good reason for thinking this is irrational because based on past history and very recent experience, it would tell any sensible, rational person that Jesus' request was about to result in egg on somebody's face. That's why you see the response. There's not, this is not going to end well for Jesus. I would just stop and interject this thought. Beware of letting reason and experience rob you of seeing the hand of God work in ways that you have never seen. Beware of letting your reason and experience rob you of missing, of not seeing the hand of God work in ways that you have never seen. Don't let your reason cause you to pass judgment on Christ's unreasonable request. Let me just also say to those who believe that reason is superior, you didn't get that from the Bible. And you can't read the Bible and look at the Son of God, who I'm sure would be more reasonable than any of us. He has perfect knowledge, but he was also very emotional. A lot of times we men erroneously say men are reasonable and women are emotional. The most dangerous thing you'll ever encounter, gentlemen, is an emotional woman equipped with reason. She will take you to the mat and smother you to death if you're not careful. And I mean that in if you're trying to get in a verbal battle, they can win when they want to. That's not putting women down. I'm just telling you guys, you think, oh, I am so rational. Therefore, because I'm rational, I'm superior. You poor emotional people. You poor emotional people. By the way, the Creator created us with reason and emotion. And He uses both of them. I, I, I wonder what it's like to pray without emotion. Because every time I pray, I get emotional. I wonder what it's like to tell my wife I love her without emotion. Because she immediately is going to say, I heard what you said, but it doesn't sound like you mean it. You ever heard that before? So beware of letting reason like Peter did. He's sitting here thinking in his mind, what does he know? Lord, we've been fishing all night. We know there's nothing there. All of our reason, all of our experience, all of our expertise, what we just went through a few hours ago has proven to us that this is an absolutely foolish, irrational request. But he says, nevertheless, reluctantly, probably, arrogantly, at your word, I will. 
I'm, I'm really not sure that Jesus knows what he's doing. This doesn't make sense, but okay, you say so, Jesus, at your word, I will. And we know what the text says. There's an unexpected catch. You see, Peter underestimated that Jesus was the creator of all things and that Jesus created the lake and Jesus created the fish. And unlike us as humans, the fish just do what Jesus tells them to do. And they came and got in the nets and the nets began to break and they filled up one pretty big boat that 12 disciples and Jesus could fit on and another pretty big boat that Jesus and his disciples could fit on. I would estimate there are three or 4,000 pounds of fish that are being pulled in in this huge seine that they threw out. I don't know if you've ever seen a huge catch of fish. I've been out on the Atlantic Ocean and seen uh, one end of the net tied to the Jeep and the other end of the same goes and it runs around the school of Virginia mullets and comes back and the boat comes to shore and then we all went running out grabbing that net and pulling it to the shore and then you had to run out and hold the net on the bottom and these fish this long were just hitting you everywhere and it's quite an, an amazing experience. This is what these guys were experiencing. They were overwhelmed. Right in the middle of the text we see this awakening that comes to Peter. And it's an awakening that, awakening that all of us needs to have. Uh, a lot of times we think that our church tells us how to be saved or there's some ritual that we engage in that tells us how to be saved or our parents uh, were saved because of them or were saved because of our baptism or were saved because of our church membership. And none of those things save it's only when there is this spiritual awakening in our heart, when God does something in our heart to bring us to an awareness of who Jesus Christ is. We know in verse 5 that he's calling Jesus Master, but we know when we come to verse 8 that he's calling Jesus Lord. And the word Lord has been used 30 times, and every time Lord has been used up to this point in the Gospel of Luke is speaking of the Lord God. So now Peter goes from calling Jesus Master, Rabbi, Teacher, Leader, to saying, you are the Lord. Get away from me. You are the Lord. You are God. This is, this is a turning point. Probably for the first time, Simon Peter saw Jesus for who he really was. One writer said, no one ever attains clear knowledge of himself unless... He has first gazed upon the face of the Lord. This was an Isaiah 6 moment. If you've ever read Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And before very many verses pass, Isaiah is saying, I'm, I am a, a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, in the presence of God, comes to grips with the fact that he is a sinner and doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. It's only when we see God for who he is that we come to grips with who we are. And until we see him for who we, he is, then we've got these views and perspectives of ourself that just aren't right. But Peter finally has seen the Christ, the Messiah, and he is Lord. And no doubt in that moment, shame filled his heart. He was ashamed. He was ashamed for filing his nails. He was ashamed for scrolling through Facebook. He was ashamed for nodding off when the King of kings and Lord of lords, when the prophet, priest, and king is standing before him and proclaiming the word of God to him, and he is, has this ambivalent approach to it. Not only is he shamed for doubting, but he's fearful. What is Jesus going to do to me? What is Jesus going to say to me? He realized how unworthy he was. There was this self-repulsion over his arrogance and his indifference. 
So get away from me. I am unworthy, Lord. I love this text. I love my Lord's reaction. Jesus didn't say, you scoundrel, you idiot. He didn't say any of that. Jesus didn't call him out. Jesus, Jesus um, didn't come down on him. Jesus didn't reiterate his failure. Jesus didn't say this is a teachable moment. Jesus didn't say, don't you ever doubt me again because we know Simon did. Jesus didn't say, well, you better not mess up again. You better not do it again. I'm going to give you one chance, two chances, three strikes, you're out. Jesus could have disqualified him. Jesus could have said, I don't need you, you worthless disciple. He didn't do any of that. I love this. Jesus acted like Simon's ambivalence never happened. Jesus acted like Simon's foolishness never happened. Jesus, I don't know if he smiled. I don't know if he chuckled. Those of you that are much deeper and more intelligent than I am, y'all go dig into all that. Help yourself. But I think Jesus responded in a way that dumbfounded Simon. And I think he responds to us in a way when we recognize who he is in a way that dumbfounds us. I think the accuser comes to us when we recognize who Jesus is and he says, you are so unworthy, you are so dirty. You don't deserve to be in the presence of God. You don't deserve to be a child of God. You don't deserve to do anything for God. You don't deserve to be used by God. The accuser comes and he levels all of these things at us and Jesus is looking at us. Notice what Jesus said. I want to read it again here. Um, in verse 10. And so also James, John, Zebedee were, were partners with Simon. They had had the single most productive day in the history of their business. <laughs> it was the best day they ever had. Best day they ever had. And Jesus said to Simon, Simon's like, I don't, you know, he's just kind of tightening up everywhere. He knows the the, the hammer's fixing to drop. And the Son of God said, do not be afraid. He knew Peter was afraid. He knew he was scared to death. He knew Peter was expecting to be reamed out. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You have spent your life catching fish so that people could kill them and eat them. And now... You're going to be catching men so that they can live. And that sunk into Peter's heart. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. What, 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 an, amazing, what an amazing call from our Lord. You will catch men. You're going to go from dealing with fish to dealing with humanity, to dealing with people. You're going to go and you're going to be relational and you're going to be redemptive and we're going to be casting nets and catching men. Just a question. Why does the concept of catching men hit some people the wrong way? I often wonder that. Folks say, well, that's up to God. And if God's going to save them, God will save them. And we don't really have to do anything. Well, why this then? Why the words of our Lord? 
Why the Great Commission? Why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5? That we've been reconciled to God and we've been sent out as ambassadors to plead in Christ's stead to lost men who are unredeemed and unreconciled be reconciled to God. Why? Why? There is a theology that says, okay, we don't need to worry about people who are lost. If God wants to save them, God will save them. But I don't believe it's in the Bible. We have been called to go and share the gospel. I want you all to be in my kingdom. I want you to be on my kingdom expansion team. These men who are an unlikely choice, they are as unlikely as catching 3,000 pounds of fish in two boats in broad daylight. If you were looking for a team to build a kingdom, where would you go? I think we'd look for the high-capacity leader. I think we'd look for the guy who scored the highest on his SAT. Most of us would look at the resumes of Peter and James and John and laugh. You can't build a kingdom with people like that. They're bullheaded. They're they're impetuous. They're uncouth. They're loud. They're arrogant. They're foul-mouthed. They're violent. And occasionally they'll need to be called out and given the name Satan. That's the people that Jesus calls. Be very careful when your leadership grid only includes those who are sharp and crisp and articulate and impressive and erudite because many of the candidates that we say we would follow can't catch men. Can't catch men. And Jesus said, you are going to be fishers of men. He said, I've got work for you to do. After all they did, he said, I've got work for you to do. And I don't know what you've been through or where you are in your life or what you think you hear Jesus saying to you, but if you have run to Christ and you have confessed your sin and you have believed on him, he has redeemed you. And the voice that you hear that keeps telling you, Remember that time you doubted Jesus? Remember that time you messed up? Remember that time you were standing by the fire and somebody said, Are you with him? And you said, No, I'm not with him. In fact, let me just prove to you I'm not with him. Listen to this language. That's the accuser. Jesus comes at the end of all our failure and he says, I've got work for you to do. I've got work for you to do. You have a role in my kingdom. I would say this to us this morning. Beware of having a higher standard than God for who gets into the kingdom and for who can serve or lead in the kingdom or have a role in the kingdom. I was having a conversation with some brothers recently and we were talking about, well, if a person is saved, they're going to do this and they're going to do this and they're going to do this and they're going to look like this and they're going to act like this and they're going to talk like this. And I thought, that sounds really good. But it depends on if you're talking to Paul or Barnabas. You know what I mean? Because there was this guy named John Mark, and Paul's like, there is no way. He's not setting foot. near. He will not come near my ministry team. And Barnabas is like, I think God wants to use him. Paul and Barnabas separated over John Mark because Paul looked at him one way and Barnabas looked at him another. 
Some of you may feel the gaze of Paul in that moment and feel worthless. Some of you may feel the encouragement of Barnabas. He's going to come alongside John Mark and walk with him and bring him to a place of usefulness. And that's a beautiful picture. I'm so encouraged by that in our Lord. The text says they forsook all. They saw something, they experienced something, they found out who Jesus was, and they forsook all and followed Jesus. When we recognize who Jesus is, it is not unreasonable to forsake all and follow him. The second thing we see is not only um, the doubters, but we see the disease. Look at verse 12, if you will. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. I think that's in Leviticus. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place to pray. Let me talk to you about the diseased for a minute. The diseased are the unclean. They are the unclean. This man was full of uncleanness. I guess in our day and age, he might be the unvaccinated. I don't know. Don't want to get into the political ramifications of all of that. What we need to understand about a leper, though, is this. A leper had an identity of unclean. If a leper were to go out in public and anybody were out there, he would have to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. And, man, people would scatter. Nobody wanted leprosy. Nobody wanted leprosy. This was a terrible disease. And in fact, people believed in that culture that if you had leprosy, that was the judgment of God. You must have been really bad. You must have been really sinful. So this guy not only has to go there, he also has to maintain, oddly enough, from the Old Testament, a distance of six feet. Right? Dr. Fauci didn't make that up. This is a good distance. They had to be quarantined. They couldn't go inside the city gates. They couldn't go where people communed. They might be able to find fellowship in the colony, but here's a guy that's walking around by himself, and probably at some point, maybe where there was a, a, a fire burning and Jesus was healing people late in the evening after the, the, the Sabbath ended, or, or maybe he was looking through the window at Peter's mother-in-law's house. He may be somebody that is very common to them, or maybe he's looking at a distance over a rock and he's watching Jesus heal people. All of a sudden, there's this hope that wells up in his heart, and he says, Lord, I know you can heal. I know you have the ability to heal. But he also knows that he is unclean. He wanted Jesus to make him clean. I don't know about you, but whenever I find out something's wrong with me, I Google it. <laughs> Does anybody else do that? I got this pain in my side. What am I going to do? Or my foot hurts. What's wrong? I'm going to Google it. And then I look and there's a splinter in there, you know. But we Google everything. And, and this guy had probably Googled it. He had tried every ritual and remedy. He'd been to every person that promised a cure for leprosy. Nobody wanted leprosy. But he knew he had it. 
And inside there was a voice that told him over and over again, you are unclean. You are unclean. You are unclean. You are unclean. Have you ever... You don't have to raise your hand. I've heard that voice. Have you? Just constantly... He tried everything. He tried good works. He tried holiness. He tried counseling. He tried yoga. He tried meditation. He tried medication. And he's still unclean. Unclean. Here's what he said. Number one, I know you have the power to make me clean. Number two, if you decide to make me clean, I will be clean. And there was only one thing that stood between him and his cleanness, and it was the decision of Jesus Christ. It was the, the cleansing from God. It was the will of God. And Jesus in the text said, I will. And immediately and completely, he was cleansed. Let me just say this about us. We don't decide to make ourselves clean. Religion doesn't make you clean. Self-righteousness doesn't make you clean. Reading the books that clean people read doesn't make you clean. Listening to the podcast that clean people listen to doesn't make you clean clean. Dressing the way clean people dress doesn't make you clean. Living in a neighborhood where clean people live doesn't make you clean. We don't decide to make ourselves clean. We try to make ourselves clean and we fail over and over again and we put on fig leaves to cover our uncleanness and we become posers and we become performers, but that doesn't make us clean. Our decision to be clean doesn't make us clean, but that still leaves us with this desire to be clean. And in our desire to be clean, listen carefully, we must run and fall down at the feet of Jesus Christ because cleansing is found in no other place. You cannot find cleansing through your efforts, through your religion, through your performance. Cleansing is only found... In Christ, surrender your uncleanness to the one who takes our uncleanness upon himself. He will take that old identity and put it upon himself and he will die and he will give us a new identity. We are no longer clean, but we are children of God. We are heirs and joint heirs. We are free. It's interesting that he had to go to the priest. The priests were the health inspectors. The priest would look at them and determine whether or not they can now be determined to be clean. The priests are the one who would decide, are you going to remain unclean or are you going to be unclean? And they may have been unclean, but if the priest said they were clean, they were clean. And they may have been clean, but if the priest said they were unclean, they were unclean. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. We have a high priest. And if you are in Christ, he says, you are clean. You see... We are what the high priest says we are. We are who holy God says we are. And, and God the Son takes us and presents us to God the Father. And because we are in Christ, the Father looks at us and says, clean, clean. The accuser comes to you and tells you you're not clean. He comes to us and tells us all kinds of lies about ourselves. Don't listen to the voice of the accuser. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he stands in our place. And he calls us children of God. 
If your ears are, turn, are tuned to the lies of the enemy, you will never see yourself as new in Christ. If you are listening to the lies of the enemy and you, if you are in Christ and you take some identity on yourself that is not consistent with the cleansing that Christ provides for us, you stand in diametrical opposition to who Christ says you are on the basis of the judgment of God the Father. It is a serious matter for us to run around and say, yes, this is who I am because of my sin when Christ has paid for my sin and given me a new identity and I am clean. And I'm not asking you to be arrogant in that cleanness, but I am asking you to be confident in that cleanness because we're called to come boldly to the throne of grace as children of God. What about healing? Let me just make some brief statements about healing. God can and does heal and is glorified. Number two, God can and doesn't heal and is glorified. When we surrender to God, and that's what he did, he said, Lord, if you will, you can. When we surrender to God, when we have faith in God, our faith in Him is not that He will heal us. Our faith in Him is not that He will bend His will to ours. Our faith is in that I know that He is God and His will is perfect no matter what the outcome. I'm not trying to downplay healing. But I also know plenty of people that have prayed for healing and didn't get it. And our faith should be in the same place whether the leprosy goes away or not. And we are clean in Christ if our faith and our hope is in Him even though we might walk the rest of our life with a limp. And then it tells us Jesus went away to pray. Jesus is human. Um, Jesus is interacting with people. This is exhausting for Him. So He gets away to get with the Father to get refreshment. The third thing we see in the text is uh, the, the disabled. Verses 17 uh, to 26. And on one of those days as he was teaching, verse 17, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So there was quite a crowd of Pharisees there, quite a crowd of the disgusted, the disgusted people there. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing him a bed, uh, bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because, because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> the scribes and the Pharisees had a conniption fit. It's interesting that if the question is who can forgive sins, only God can forgive sins, then they said, Well, who is this man to forgive sins? The question should be obvious. He's God. They didn't get that. They, did, they didn't follow uh, just their own sensible conclusion to the questions that they were asking. Let me find my place. Verse 21, And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this? Who is this who speaks blasphemies? It's God. <laughs> who is this? Who is this that's saying your sins can be forgiven? It's God who's saying your sins can be forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Duh. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, and by the way, that's good theology. No, no one can forgive sins but God. That's good theology. 
Jesus perceived what was in their hearts and thoughts. And he said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Here's the deal. God can look at a sick man. God can look at a paralyzed man. And I don't know if he was paralyzed from birth. I don't know if he was paralyzed because of an accident. But obviously, when someone's been paralyzed, their, their muscles atrophy. They begin to disappear. They can't move. He's on a stretcher. I'm not sure if he can move anything. Somebody probably has to feed him and take care of every need that this man has. Obviously, there is no question that this man is paralyzed. Everybody in the community would know he was paralyzed. Luke is writing for Theophilus' sake, and Theophilus is going to be able to, if he do, does his research, identify this house where they remove the tiles from the roof and let this guy down with the ropes. And, and the people are sitting inside listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden some dirt begins to fall, some dust begins to fall, and all of a sudden the, the sun begins to radiate through the top of the roof, and they hear some guy up on the roof saying, Can you see anybody down there? They drop him down on the ropes, and he's right there, and Jesus is not shocked by it. He, he didn't mind if they disrupted the order of service, the liturgy. But Jesus says, all right, what's easier to do? Well, it's probably easier to, to proclaim something that can't be verified. Your sins are forgiven you. But... Jesus is the only one that can forgive sins because he's God, but Jesus is going to say, okay, guys, which is easier? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you that I give commands and they come true. What I say comes to pass. And he says to this paralytic, take up your bed and walk. And he grabbed his bed and he went home, confirming the fact that this man's sins were indeed forgiven. We have to understand too that Jesus first addressed the bigger the bigger problem the bigger problem is not our situation that we're in it's not the bigger problem we think if we had relief from our situation that we would be okay but our biggest problem is sin Jesus Jesus addresses the obvious problem which is the healing that is needed but the real problem is the sin in the man's heart and Jesus obviously forgives the sin of this disabled man. There's much more that we could say, but the Pharisees have a conniption fit that Jesus has called himself God. They, in their great spiritual discernment, in their bitterness, in their cynicism, in their suspicion, um, don't like what's going on. So they start trouble. Jesus moves from the disabled um, now to the despised. And you can, you can see that beginning in, in verse number 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me and leave everything. And he arose and followed him. Levi throws a party at his house. We see later on the text. The Pharisees are there with their uh, judgmental heart and attitude. A couple of things about Levi. Levi is, first of all, he's wealthy. Um, he's a wealthy tax collector on uh, the, the Sea of Galilee, probably in Capernaum, uh, collecting taxes on the fish. So this guy is rolling in money. 
tax collectors. He was a Jewish tax collector. His name was Levi, was probably one of the most despised men in all of Capernaum. Some commentators said he was the most hated man in Capernaum. And that Jesus would save a tax collector and make him an apostle is inconceivable. This guy, Levi, wrote the gospel of Matthew. One writer said, no outward prosperity or no type of success can compensate for the absence of God. And although Levi was very wealthy, he knew that there was this absence of who God was. And he knew of Jesus' reputation. And Jesus walks up to him and immediately just says, follow me. And he leaves the books and he leaves the money and he leaves the table. And he probably leaves all of these people that are working for him, these enforcers and these bouncers and the, the staff. And, and he just drops it all and he follows Jesus. Then he invites Jesus to a party. It's a, it's a long meal. Um, it's not a brief, you know, drop in and leave. They're reclining at table. The text tells us he's invited the entire tax guild. These are very wealthy people, so the Pharisees are standing out there in their Porsches and Lamborghinis and all kinds of cars in the yard, and the folks are dressed to the to the hilt, and someone would, had, had written that this was just a group of very undesirable people. And Jesus is in there hanging out. Jesus is chummy with the scum, with the lowlifes, with the rich, with the gaudy, with the, the lavish. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, there's no way that the Messiah would hang out with anybody that's outside of the covenant. And the Pharisees were livid. Godly people shouldn't expose themselves to such filth and contamination. That's what we think. That's what we think. As though we don't have the Spirit. As though we don't have the fruit of the Spirit. As though we should not be able to enter into any situation filled with the Spirit and the Spirit flow out of us even into the unholiest and darkest places. I'm not encouraging you to go to somewhere bad. I'm just telling you, be careful when you get around people that you think you're better than. Be careful. Because if you are saved, you are saved by grace. And if you view yourself as anything other than saved by grace, then you will give yourself permission to look down your nose at somebody that may not have had the same advantages or even had the same grace that you have. And I want to tell you, if we recognize that we're saved by grace, we don't have the option of looking at anybody else in any other way than with a gracious look at them in hope that they would be redeemed and experience the grace of God like we did. But yet these were the religious people. These were the spiritual people. These were the, these were the, the certified people. What are you doing with these, these, these sick scoundrel of humanity? They were sick. And the text says they were grumbling. And the word there is, uh, is gaguzo. It's, it's a word that, that sounds like what it, you know, it's an, it's an onomatopoeia. It's a word that, that sounds like the grumbling gaguzo. They were grumbling. They were just getting around. Can you believe this? Brother, can you believe this? Priest, son, can, can, father, can, can you believe these, these filthy people? Just a guzzo. And they focused on the externals. They're eating and they're drinking. You can't build a kingdom with Pharisees. You can't build a kingdom with people who know more about what they're against 
than what they're for. They're just miserable people, and everything they see makes them miserable, and they're disgusted. And Jesus closes out with these simple words, and he's saying it to the Pharisees. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Hey, can I tell you something? If you think you're better than somebody, you think you're well and they're sick, and you don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus. This is a great statement. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. <sighs> that just makes me that just makes me feel welcomed into the kingdom. I don't know about you. Can you just can you just let that sink in for a minute? Does that do anything for you? I have not come to call the righteous. In fact, the righteous can't even hear Jesus calling. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said, I, I've come to call the doubters. I've come to call the diseased. I've come to call the disabled. I've come to call the despised. But you disgusted Pharisees, you can't even hear me. And you need me more than these people that you that you despise need me. You need me more than they do. Let me just say some, give you some thoughts as I close. Number one, this is an invitation to the kingdom. If you're here today and you're not in the kingdom, please hear the good news of the kingdom. Would you come into the kingdom? Would you come into the kingdom? Now, you're going to get in the kingdom, you're going to like, what is he doing here? I don't know if I'm as bad as he is. I don't know if I've done what he's done or she's done. I don't know. The invitation coming to the kingdom. If, if you doubt, if you feel unclean, if you're disabled, if you're despised, come into the kingdom. Not only come into the kingdom, don't just come into the kingdom and hang out, but Jesus says, come into the kingdom, he's got a job for you. Jesus wants to use you in his kingdom. He wants you to, to use you to catch men, catch men who are unclean, catch men who are in paralysis, catch men who are in sin, catch men who have lived a life of selfishness and greed and hatred. It, it is those people that the kingdom is for who give you a new identity. If you're a doubter, he will give you a more sure word of prophecy. If you are unclean, he will make you perfectly righteous because he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you are paralyzed, he will fill you with his spirit and give you his strength. If you are despised, he has already suffered and been despised and rejected for you and for me. I would invite you to come into the kingdom today. You're already in a kingdom. You're already in a kingdom. But this is an invitation into the kingdom of God. This is the only kingdom where there's good news. Come into the kingdom this morning. Secondly, it's an invitation to examine ourselves. It's an invitation to self-examination. Are you a critic? <laughs> is criticism your spiritual gift? Are you a cynic? 
Are you able to identify people and their problems? Would Jesus' disciples be welcome in your kingdom? Do you look at unsavory people and doubt God's ability to use or save them? Do you gravitate to people who seem to have it all together? Like you. That's my kind of people. Them good people. When I pastored a church in a different place from here, this really sharp couple came forward one Sunday and someone who had been in the church a while said, that's the kind of people we want at our church. And I was glad to have them, but just because people are sharp and crisp and clean and look like they have it all together, we want the people that are broken. We want the people that are despised. We want the doubters. We want the diseased. We want the disabled. That's what Jesus said in Isaiah 61. I would also ask you, are you spiritually healthy? Are you walking around with a stethoscope and a thermometer and rubber gloves testing everybody else's spiritual health? That's what the Pharisees do. Or are you shocked that the Son of God would welcome you into his kingdom? And at one point, if you were shocked that he was wel would welcome you into his kingdom, why are you not waking up every morning just shocked that he would welcome you into his kingdom? Why not? I would encourage you to examine yourself today. I would encourage you to hear the invitation to the kingdom. And I would ask you, whose voice are you listening to? The voice of the accuser or the voice of the advocate? Many of us are in paralysis spiritually because the accuser is coming to us and lying to us and bringing up, dredging up junk from the past that the Father has forgotten. Telling us what we aren't when the advocate has died for us and stands with us so that we can be confident in who we are in Christ. Whose voice are you listening to? Someone told me this week, don't ever listen to anyone who does not see you as who you are in Jesus Christ. They have no right, they have no grounds, they have no basis to do an assessment of who you are unless they see you for who you are in Christ. And by the way, why don't we in the kingdom, if we're there, get used to looking at our brothers and sisters on the basis of who they are in Christ? It would give us a lot more time to catch men, wouldn't it? But in fact, when you hear all the garguzo, grumbling, ah, it really does cause us to lose focus. It really does cause us to want to hear more of it. Say what? They did what? They said what? Oh my goodness. Th they said this. They said this. They said this. They said this. From now on you will catch men. Well, just let them die. We're over here in a gaguzo moment. What voice are you listening to? And then finally, we're all fishing for something. Every one of us, we're all fishing for something. What are you fishing for? If you are in the kingdom, you should be fishing for men. And, and by the way, just let me say, um, this, is, this is, is pretty undeniable. The same guy that wrote Luke wrote the book of Acts. And believe it or not, if you read the book of Acts... 
again, historical narrative under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, guess what they're doing? There are, I think, seven or eight or maybe nine updates throughout the book of Acts. And every update, almost every update includes in it that people were added to the number. Sometimes they were added daily. Why? Because men who were in the kingdom and women who were in the kingdom were fishing for men and women because that's what Jesus does when he brings us into the kingdom. He says, from now on, instead of whatever fishing hole you've been fishing in and whatever fish you've been trying to catch that only leads to death, now I'm going to call you to fish in a different way, in a different place, for a different thing, for a different reason, and now you're going to catch men. We're still going to be fishing, but we're going to catch men. That's what happens in the kingdom, at least in the kingdom of Jesus. And so if you're not in the kingdom, come to the kingdom. If you are in the kingdom, be, beware of those who speak with disgust. And come join those that are catching men. 